More chilling details from the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago emerge, like empty folders of top secret classified information. Hundreds of documents of our nation's highest top secret, sensitive, compartmented information stolen by Donald Trump. And what's Trump and MAGA talking about? How upset they are about the photographs of the evidence of the crime that were taken. We will analyze that and the very bizarre hearing before Judge Eileen Cannon, who's proven to have just no clue what she is doing. She has not issued an order yet out of the Southern District of Florida, but let's break that down. Popak Trump's top White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and former Deputy White House counsel, Pat Philman, who were previously interviewed by the FBI related to the Mar-a-Lago top secret documents Trump stole, went before the grand jury, this time the January 6th grand jury in Washington, D.C. on Friday. This was underrated and underreported news with huge implications and a focus we're seeing Popak on fake electors as the real driving issue in that election interference grand jury. Now, speaking of fake electors, emails emerge of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice radical extremist Clarence Thomas, telling Wisconsin state legislators after the November 2020 election that the courts don't matter. The governor doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Just send a different slate. She calls it a clean slate, which means a fake slate of electors on January 6th. Traitor. And on the topic of January 6th, a former NYPD cop, Thomas Weber, turned January 6th insurrectionist who showed up in body armor, attacked a DC police officer with a flagpole, was just sentenced to 10 years in prison after his guilty conviction, marking the longest sentence yet for an insurrectionist. Good riddance. And Trump says people like that will get full pardons if he's ever reelected again. I mean, the insurrection is still ongoing. And then let's turn to Fulton County, where Lindsey Graham is ordered to testify again before the special grand jury. He hasn't testified yet, but attempt after attempt after attempt by Lindsey Graham to try to block his testimony. And surely more attempts are to come by this coward insurrectionist. And finally, let's go to Louisville, Kentucky, where a Trump-appointed judge rules that wedding photographers can discriminate against same-sex couples. The cruelty is the point for these radical Republican MAGA extremists. The most consequential legal news of the day, Ben Micellis, Michael Popak, legal AF. Michael Popak, how are you, sir? Ben, the late Keith Jackson, the sports newscaster, would call this a barn burner. And boy, do we have a barn burner episode today to cover everything in Trump world, insurrection world, and the fight for our democracy.
you know, Popak in that intro, I didn't talk about even some other topics because that intro could have gone on forever. We should also talk about in this episode as well, Steve Bannon's motion for new trial denied. He's set to be sentenced in October. Also, Trump turning over financial records finally to the House Oversight uh, Committee, which was basically characterized as a deal, but it really wasn't a deal. I mean, Trump lost at every level, and so he had to turn it over. And if I guess it made his ego feel good that it was a deal to turn it over. He lost there. The House Ways and Means Committee beat him in that court case because Trump isn't making valid legal arguments. As long as our federal court system is a federal court system, and they're trying to destroy that, these radical Republican MAGAs, because Every time they actually have tried right with the lead up to the January 6th um, and all of the cases that they lost where they were not just laughed out of court, but lost their legal license. Fortunately, the federal courts and our court system generally, while certainly not perfect and far, far from perfect, still has provided that remaining very thin layer where you have to go and at least speak semi-logically, ideally before a judge, except where the judge, except where the judge may not be fully logical, which is one of the ways Trump tried to attack our judiciary, frankly, by appointing inexperienced and unqualified judges like Judge Eileen Cannon, who's a judge in the Southern District of Florida, a judge who, when the search warrant was executed at Mar-a-Lago on uh, August 8th, signed by Magistrate Judge Reinhardt through the normal procedures. This isn't new. This isn't novel, right? Search warrants get issued every day. A magistrate judge signs it. The magistrate judge has jurisdiction over it. There's a probable cause determination. And these issues are fought before the magistrate judge, right? I mean, whether there's a special master or not, I mean, these types of issues go before uh, magistrate judges. And just the very idea of a special master is really only in the most narrow of circumstances where courts have found that a law firm is the target of the search warrant. And there's all these other client documents entangled in it. And there's a lot, there's a large quantity of documents, a very narrow circumstance. But here, Trump didn't file anything before the magistrate judge Reinhardt ever, even to this day, really made no arguments before him, but certainly filed no pleadings, but instead filed this motion for judicial oversight in the Southern District of Florida because he appointed a lot of his own judges. Uh, there's a random assignment, but he got assigned one of the judges he appointed, Eileen Cannon. I don't think any of us fully realized just how inexperienced she was. One of the tip-offs were... As she asked for briefing on this issue, a group of bipartisan Republican, Democrat, former federal prosecutors tried to teach her what the law is, namely Judge Cannon. We know that Trump and his idiot lawyers filed things before you, but you don't have jurisdiction under the Fourth Amendment that deals with unlawful searches and seizures and its concomitant rule in federal rule of criminal procedure 41G, which relates to the return of property, you don't have jurisdiction for a number of reasons, including that the threshold issue is that the property at issue has to belong to the person asking for it back. 
And the rights that somebody has are very well defined, but very limited at the pre-indictment rule 6E grand jury stage. And judge, you don't really have the right to even hear this for a number of reasons. These documents don't belong to Trump. There is no claim of executive privilege. It's not a close call at all, is what these federal prosecutors had to tell Judge Eileen Cannon. And so Judge Cannon over last week, and while we were actually recording the last legal AF popak, what Judge Cannon says is, I'm inclined to grant a special master. And we've talked about a special master, which is just an independent third party, usually a retired judge or a practicing lawyer who would go through and review all of the records and review all of the documents and prepare a report to the court. And the judge says, I'm inclined to grant this. All legal observers like, what do you mean you're inclined to grant it? Aren't these issues already moot? Aren't these issues? Didn't the government already review these records? Number one. And number two, what would a special master even be doing here at all? What what would be the role of a special master where the process was set forth in the search warrant? There was a filter team that reviewed the records already and segregated what privilege may exist, a very small subset of attorney-client privileged records. And so what would this special master even need to do? The government made its filing. Uh, uh, on the 30th, the filing had attached to it an actual photograph of the documents that Donald Trump stole. Just one little photograph. And here's the point I want to make about that photograph before also turning it back to you, Popat. When the government filed that or took the photograph, they didn't know that Trump was going to ask that all of these things be made public. Far from it. The normal course of pre-indictment conduct at issue is that all of this that we're seeing is unprecedented. Like Judge Eileen Cannon in one sentence, what she should have done is just said, um, the, either the issues are moot, I don't have jurisdiction over this, it goes back to Judge Reinhardt. So what Trump and his legal team basically said is, we want you to, we want you to file these documents. They didn't put this in their writings to judges, but they said this publicly. And they taunted, though, the DOJ to make these things public. And so the DOJ makes it public. Then we have this hearing on September 1st before before Judge Eileen Cannon over the issues of whether there'd be a special master where she really shows she has no clue. Like it was some of the most bizarre conversations back and forth that we heard where she's like, but what would be the harm of a special master? And the government has to explain, you don't even have jurisdiction to hear this, to even ask this question, Judge. And the harm would be to our national security. The DOJ, we're the executive now. Executive privilege is with the current executive, not past executives, Judge Cannon. And this point, Popak, is so not controversial that even people like Bill Barr have gone on the propaganda channel known as Fox. And they go, this issue of special masters a red herring. There's no need for a special master here at all. This is executive privilege documents. It belongs to Biden. You even have Barr saying that. The other one point I want to make at this September hearing, and then I'll throw it to you, Popak, is at this hearing before Cannon, you have Trump's lawyers whining that some of this information from the affidavit was made public. 
They're the ones on TV every day saying make it public. And they're saying this is so unprecedented and the DOJ has made it political. You made it political. The DOJ said nothing about this until y'all tweeted, not tweeted, but whatever the freak is, stupid social platform is over and over and over again and said and said to do it publicly. You have people like Cash Patel saying unredact everything. And then when it was unredacted, he goes, now I'm a target. Gaslighting liars. Their legal arguments are wrong. Popak, did I just cover it all? Did I steal your thunder? I know I didn't. I know I didn't. Let's no, let's, no. I think I think people thought maybe I take the I took the weekend off and you were doing it on your own. But let me see what I can add. So, uh, first of all, there's a disconnect between the legal team for Donald Trump and reality. They think winning a news cycle and having two minutes of fame on nightly news and Fox News or Newsmax is the equivalent of victory or a victorious strategy in a courtroom. And it just isn't the Department of Justice under no circumstances, except when they were challenged and or and or the other side, the criminal defendant, in this case, Trump opened the door. Would they ever have revealed as much information as they have? As you said just before in your in your analysis, DOJ doesn't normally operate this way, but certainly when the door is open and the opportunity is presented as a gift, they are going to take it. I'm not aware of any high profile criminal defendant, especially one like Trump, who has ever challenged the Department of Justice this way in order for them to have another second and third and fourth bite at the apple to present their case to the American people. Department of Justice is much more circumspect than that. And we all know that that Merrick Garland is very sober in his appraisals on how to run a case, but they're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. In this case, Donald Trump's lawyers, whether it's Evan Corcoran or it's this guy, James Trusty, or any of the other ones that have been involved. And we'll talk about them as well. And some of them are now in a pre precarious situation, including uh, Christine Bob and Alina Haba because of their connectivity to Mar-a-Lago and things that they're on record in their own affidavits as saying, so don't be surprised if there's yet another layer of Trump lawyers that find themselves either being criminally prosecuted or having civil bar problems because of their representation of Donald Trump. Let's talk about what normally would happen at this moment, having lost these um, hearings, um, having had all of this information, including the 88 boxes uh, or the 88 empty um, folders of classified and other top secret information being revealed in the detailed inventory ordered by Judge Cannon to be released at the time of the hearing the other day. Um, what normally would happen in a practice like Ben and I have is that we would have already opened up a dialogue with the Department of Justice, a back channel dialogue to be negotiating some sort of resolution short of the continued involvement of Judge Cannon or Judge Reinhardt, the magistrate judge. I don't think any of those things are going on. First of all, I don't think this team of lawyers that Trump has appointed have credibility with the Department of Justice, which comes from years of practice, usually because they were once prosecutors. Now they've moved over to the other side. I don't get the sense any of these people have the profile or the bio to have that kind of credibility with the people on the other side of the table of the Department of Justice. So there's no exit ramp for Trump. I mean, normally an exit ramp would be OK. We'll let you come in. We'll go box by box, room by room, not just at Mar-a-Lago. We'll show you the Trump 
um, residence in New York. We'll show you Bedminster Golf Club. We'll show you every place where he possibly could have stashed documents to resolve this issue once and for all in a, in trade for something. I'm not sure what that something is. That dialogue, I am pretty confident, is not going on, and everything's going to have to be done in the public in the public uh, sphere of the lawsuit itself. The goal of the Department of Justice. Let's not. Let's not forget this with all of the sensational reporting that's going on outside of the Midas network. The goal is to get back stolen belongings, stolen stolen property that belongs to the American people and to the National Archive. That's what this is all about. They tried to do it voluntarily in negotiation with the then outgoing president and his team, including Philbin, who we'll talk about next, the lawyer with Pat Cipollone in the general counsel's office or the White House counsel's office. When that failed, they then continued to negotiate with demanding letters to Trump. When they didn't like the responses, they went to a subpoena, a grand jury subpoena to obtain the documents back. When that didn't work or when they got uh, conflicting testimony from cooperating witnesses that that the Trump lawyers and the Trump uh, people around him were not telling the truth about either the storage of the documents, their location, or the amount of documents that he had been re that he was still retaining, then they went to Je Magistrate Judge Reinhardt to get the search warrant to take back the stolen property and the fruits of the crime for which they are now prosecuting on obstruction. This last filing and the court hearing that happened in conjunction with it gave the Department of Justice yet another opportunity to say two incredible things, Ben. One, the documents that we need have been moved, we believe, on reasonable evidence, right, on probable cause, that the documents that we are seeking from the, from the former president have been moved and concealed to obstruct an ongoing criminal investigation. And there is an active criminal investigation against the former president of the United States. Two things in the filing that just happened leading into the hearing with Judge Cannon in the West Palm Beach Federal Courthouse. Now, this is the, the part about the documents missing I want to I want to be specific. The way the inventory is written, it is obvious that there are 88 empty folders that were marked classified or returned to secretary or returned to attache or whatever the, the stamp was. Yeah, military. Yep. Military. We don't know from reading the inventory and the did not come out at the hearing that the government thinks that somewhere in the other list is the documents that would have went into those folders. So there's two theories. One. There are 88 missing documents, which is sort of how we started the show. 88 the folders with missing documents. It could be hundreds yeah. of documents in there. Right. Or it could be no missing documents yep. because it could be the documents could be in the rest of the inventory just having been removed. We don't know the answer to that. The government hasn't taken a position on that. And certainly it didn't come up in the hearing um, in West Palm Beach. That was that was this week. Now, having said all of that, the the even even Aileen Cannon. Even she, with very little experience, she's the mo most junior member of the Southern District of Florida judges. If you look at the list, she's the last one there because of her experience level. She got this case, as you said earlier, Ben, by random assignment, not because of experience, not because the chief judge, who I know, who used to be a Miami-Dade Circuit Court judge, assigned it to her. It's random. It's random. If there's no conflict, it goes to that judge. She probably had a lot of time on her hands because she's a new judge and doesn't have probably a full docket yet. That's how she got the case. Um, so she she's even she in the reporting from the courtroom. This was not televised, but there was a handful of legal commentators, including Hugo Lowell, who was in the room, who reported 
the dialogue as follows when it came to the special master. She kept asking Trusty and Corcoran, what is the special master going to do? And when you read their answers or the report of their answers, it's ridiculous. They don't even know why or what the special master would do. Well, uh, he would sort things out. And the judge says, what do you mean sort things out? Well, uh, there's work product and attorney-client privilege in there, which has already been identified in 40 or 50 categories by the by the taint team, by the Department of Justice. They've already done that part. So she is getting to the rock bottom of why do you need the special master? And I don't think she heard a very good answer, which is surprising because that is the very basis of the motion that they filed. You'd think they would at least know why they're asking for it. And they didn't have a good answer for that. And then there was the debate that you just talked about under Rule 41G about who owns the property. Fundamentally, the person who's arguing for the suppression or the return of the property has to own the property. And the government said he doesn't own the property. These are all records of the federal government, the National Archive. And it became so when he was president and certainly on his way out the door when he was packing his boxes. So the 41G fight was interesting. The one issue that you and I talked about in the last podcast last Saturday that that doesn't seem to be does not seem to be resonating with Judge Cannon is the one that you and I actually liked. It's the one about there that the former president or the president at the time, Trump and the Department of Justice are all on the same side of the executive branch. And therefore, you can't exert executive privilege when you're letting one other brand, one other uh, uh, aspect of the of the executive branch look at something that the president had done. She didn't seem to be buying that, but that's a very sophisticated argument that she probably doesn't have the experience to um, to analyze properly. But she was smart enough not to make the ruling from the bench. So she she did what what I referred to and you referred to in the business as take it sub Judas, meaning under judicial advisement. And she's gonna I, I assume put her law clerk onto reading these briefs. Did they accept? Did she allow the amicus briefs that you referred to to be accepted? Did she did she take those in? Do you know? I I don't know one way or another, and and whether she actually read it or not, you know, I don't think is uh, you know, I, I don't think is of import or significance. No, no, my, my, that's think... not my, but but that's not wait, wait, hold on, that's not my question. My question is, did she did she allow them in? If she did, the law clerk is going to be buried up to his eyeballs or her eyeballs looking at these briefs, and then she's going to issue the ruling. I, was there more than one amicus brief file though? Why would I don't I don't think I don't think yeah. no. She they got all the DOJ briefs and everything else. But yeah. look, at the end of the day, there's two other issues that are important. One is from an evidence standpoint, Christina Bob's affidavit certifying that 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 there had done a diligent search of the quote unquote storage room and the entire body of top secret and secret confidential information is contained in this one folder. Here you go, Department of Justice. But you also have reporting, and this is right because you and I talked about it, that in May, on May 5th, in the New York Attorney General fight over documents, where the judge in that case, Ergeron, ordered the uh, Trump lawyers to certify to his satisfaction that a proper due diligence search had been done to respond to Tish James's subpoena in the New York Attorney General's office, which was five days or so after the Department of Justice used their grand jury subpoena to try to get the records back. Alina Haba certified in an affidavit that she had searched Mar-a-Lago, the 45 office, the desk of Donald Trump and his bedroom, his nightstand and other places looking for documents and didn't find any 
in relation to uh, a Tish James's subpoena. Why is that important? Because A, if she's, it, we already know from the Department of Justice, there were at least three top secret documents in the desk drawer of, of uh, Trump. So Alina Haba opens a drawer and there is top secret information in there. She either has a duty to report it, okay, to somebody, or she has seen it without proper security clearance, which is another problem for Alina Haba. Because this is what happens when lawyers vouch for their clients and their clients happen to be somebody like Donald Trump who's untrustworthy because then you get in trouble. You know, you and I don't, I mean, I don't vouch for clients beyond what me through my own due diligence, through my own review of records, believes is true. And I'm not going to take a position in court that isn't consistent with the facts as I have discovered them. And if I feel like I'm getting bullshitted by my client, I either fire the client, don't take the client at the beginning, or we do an affidavit where the client puts down everything that they believe is true, and it's on their sworn testimony, not mine, but not Trump's lawyers. He hires lawyers that will put themselves in harm's way unwittingly, unwittingly or not, because they want the publicity, because they want to be patriot litigators, as Alina Haba likes to call herself on her Twitter feed. And they like the celebrity of being out there signing these affidavits. And the problem is they're usually untrue because they're representing Donald Trump. So we're going to see if this combination of Alina Haba, Chris, Christine Bob, and there was an interesting thing that Hugo Lowell noted on the way, I think he asked the question on the courthouse steps of West Palm Beach at the end of the hearing. He shouted out to Evan Corker and the lawyer for Donald Trump, who also was a lawyer for Steve Bannon, who we're going to talk about next. He said to Evan Corcoran, have you retained your own counsel related to your representation of Donald Trump. A snarky question, but one given the long history of lawyers who are facing jail time or civil or civil penalty because of Donald Trump is not, I think, is not unfair. You know, they say what MAGA stands for is uh, make attorneys get attorneys is one of the things that it stands <laughs> for. You know, one of the other things that is worth noting about Judge Eileen Cannon not making a ruling, though, if the whole this is an argument that the government made about Trump waiting until the 22nd when the search warrant was served on the 8th, which is if this is really an urgent matter, like are you asking for an injunction and saying that there is irreparable harm? If the judge believed that a judge would act quickly and say, OK, this is an urgent issue. We need a special master right now because what's already happened. And this is why Bill Barr crazy that I'm citing Bill Barr says this whole issue is a red herring is because the DOJ has already reviewed all of the records. A special master doesn't even matter. Setting aside the jurisdiction issue, what are you going to you're going to claw back and tell the DOJ men in black and, you know, pretend you didn't see what you just saw? And the DOJ had a filter team which removed a very small group of attorney client privilege documents. That's the only privilege that's at issue. But the DOJ's completed its work. Another question I get asked is, well, what's the consequence of Eileen Cannon? You know, she could be overturned by the yeah. 11th Circuit, which <laughs> is the Court of Appeals there. Um, she could be kind of shunned by her peers as just being a clownish judge. But that's one of the issues. There's not a lot of checks and balances on these rogue Trump federal judges. And if she believes that she has jurisdiction, the next step is she'll make a ruling and then it'll have to be appealed if it's a yeah. if it's a bad ruling. I, but her I want to see the ruling before we I want to see the ruling before we totally attack her. I'm yeah, not yeah, sure what she's ruling. But, yeah. but, but her <laughs> comments, 
her comments and even the fact that she's not moving quickly on the issue is uh, kind of counterintuitive to what her words are at the hearing, because if this is an urgent matter, you address it urgently. And she said things that she believed it was urgent. So why do you take it under submission and not file something like the day of the hearing or let them know what you're going to do? Because it is the, if it is that urgent, that's an issue there. I want to also just briefly say this, too. Why is Trump obstructing this? Like, I, I think the broader point is that when you know from intelligence officials who have briefed Trump on very sensitive, um, you know, daily briefing CIA matters, what they'll all tell you is Trump didn't care about what ha what affected the nation. His questions and they had to like draw doodles for him because he's such an idiot to try to explain it. All he cared about was how the information impacted him, right? That was his focus on his daily briefings and his time there. So why would he take these records for a transactional purpose? Why would he obstruct it? Because he doesn't want people to know how he's misusing our national secrets. And then we get to the final question, which is, all of these, not the final statement, is these MAGA Republicans who don't even want us to investigate these issues, knowing that these top secret sensitive compartmented information was stolen, to even understand how that could impact our national security, which we already know it will be very, very severe based on the type of documents, just goes to show you yet again and again and again, frankly, what Trump said in 2016. He could go and shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue. And what the Republicans would say is, but Obama killed Osama bin Laden. Presidents have killed people before. Trump can't kill. They make the dumbest arguments. That's what they would argue if Trump killed somebody we, we, from Fifth Avenue. And that is who they are. There's no low. There's no depth to the levels and layers of their justifying this man's radical, extreme anti-Americanism. We now we now understand why President Biden, soon after taking office, cut off Trump from getting the daily president's briefing, which most ex-presidents get um, because they are still statesmen and diplomats of the world. We've seen it time and time again. Carter, Obama, Bush um, all took leading roles in world affairs following their departure. Biden made the decision, I'm sure in consultation with the rest of his national intelligence apparatus heads, that Trump could not be trusted. This is well before Mar-a-Lago. This is immediately after because because of Trump's penchant for tweeting and now truthing anything that he gets his hands on, as you said, in a, ben, in a transactional way. He, he cares about the dirt. He doesn't and how it impacts him. Ooh, oh, oh, there's a thing about President uh, Macron and France's sex life. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to take that folder with me. I mean, that's the rumor of what was in one of the folders that he took with him. But but we now know why the first time really in modern history, a president, ex-president was denied the presidential briefing or national security briefing on a regular basis is because uh, it's because of Donald Trump. And my favorite line, Ben, from his, because he's 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 floundering around the law. The legal team for him is floundering around trying to find a defense, which doesn't exist. He's floundering around trying to come up with some sort of statements that keep him relevant as he's still about to announce that he's running for office. 
uh, he said at Labor Day weekend, I don't think that's going to happen. But even even then, when he when he saw that picture that you and I talked about last week, Exhibit F to the motion with all of the um, top, not all of it, but a lot of the top secret information from box 2A of the search warrant on his carpet, I guess, in his office or somewhere with a photo taken, which, again, the Department of Justice would not have released had they not been challenged by Trump's own strategy having backfired on him. He said, oh, look at that. I kept them. <laughs> I love the admission. I didn't have them strewn on the floor. I kept them neatly in a box. OK, this is the equivalent of a drug lord having seen his kilos of cocaine on a table neatly stacked behind the prosecutor saying, that's not how I that's not how I stack my kilos of cocaine. I mean, the fact that he admitted that he still sees those documents as his mine, 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 which is the exact predicate of the crime that they're investigating against him and the fact that no lawyer will stand in his way and tell him, get off, as you said last week, get off the microphone, get off the interviews, stop social media, you're going to go to jail. Do you understand this? Take the fifth, don't incriminate yourself. He has nobody around him that will allow that. Maybe Michael Cohen back in the day when he was still in Trump's orbit would have been able to talk him out of it. But he has these rent-a-lawyers that, that you know, you and I barely can keep track of them. One day we should just run a scroll. We should have Salty run a scroll while we're talking of all the lawyers that he's had in all the cases dating back to Jan 6th. I mean, it, it, would, it would go on for most of our segment. But these lawyers don't care about him. They care about their own publicity. They care about winning the news cycle of getting the next client because they're associated with Donald Trump, you know, with their license, with their with their bar license hanging in the hanging in the balance. No, no doubt about it. Speaking of lawyers, though, who have been cooperating with uh, and they really had no choice. I mean, they have to show up before the grand jury. Um, but these are Trump's top White House counsel. I mean, people who are fairly respected, actually, in, in the legal community who probably lost a lot of respect when they worked for Trump, but are trying to, I guess, rebound and, and rebuild, if you will. Pat Cipollone, who was the top White House counsel. And uh, Deputy White House Counsel Pat Philbin were already aware that they had interviewed with the FBI on these Mar-a-Lago top secret documents in connection with the espionage, uh, obstruction and mutilation concealment investigation there. But this week, they on Friday went before the D.C. Grand Jury on January 6th issues. From what we're learning, a lot of the focus is on the fake elector slate, but uh um, still January 6th in general and election interference generally there. Um, but uh, Popak, what are we learning about their DOJ uh, a, a grand jury subpoena and them showing up before the grand yeah. jury? Yeah, I mean, to their credit, even though it's it's faint, faint praise, they're not fighting going into the grand jury like some others. And as you said, Pat Cipollone and Philbin have been front and center in front of the Jan 6 committee live testimony that you and I have commented on in one of the eight or nine Jan 6 um, hearings. We're going to have more hearings once we're done with uh, the summer recess after Labor Day that we'll be covering. Um, and they gave very strong and credible evidence about um, all of the things related to Jan 6, leading up to Jan 6, the planning, the rally itself and all of that. Now, there's really two more categories of things because they, they were flies on the wall for a number of things. 
The one being we know that at least one of the grand juries, we think there's three or more that are operating by the Department of Justice in D.C. is focused on the fake elector, the the Green Bay sweep or whatever it was that Navarro came up with, along with Eastman. And they want to know what what the lawyers knew about that plan and how they um, facilitated the plan or did facilitate the plan, what facts that they have. And I guess they're going to they're going to rely on the crime fraud exception of the professional rules of conduct and ethics that we've talked about and give testimony about that um, to the to the grand jury. They're certainly not fighting it. I also like Philbin, particularly and Cipollone, if not this grand jury, but another one that's obviously impaneled. Because remember, Ben, to tie this back to the beginning of the segment, there is a grand jury that allowed the um, De- Department of Justice to get a subpoena for the return of the classified documents held by Donald Trump. There had to have been a sitting grand jury for that. So I think Philbin, who was, the reporting goes, was involved to try to get the documents back in January, all back to the National Archive. He was trying to broker it between his client and Donald Trump, met tremendous resistance and headwind from Donald Trump, obviously, and was unsuccessful. I see Philbin testifying about that and maybe even Pat Cipollone as well about this new obstruction charge about the documents that have been retained. But um, look, it's a terrible event. I don't care that Trump whistles in the graveyard and acts like it's no big deal when reasonably credible lawyers who, as you said before they tattered their reputation, had good reputations in in the political and legal circles, are testifying against him about his conduct and things that he knew or should have known for criminal intent. Terrible day for Donald Trump. Great day for democracy. And we talk about the fake elector scheme. And obviously, people who have listened to Legal AF know what we're talking about. But one of the plans uh, when all of the lawsuits failed because they were completely bogus and relied on false affidavits relating to or leading to a lot of Trump's own lawyers getting disbarred. That's how much of a lie these horrible cases were that they filed after the November 2020 elections. But the fake elector scheme was basically People like Giuliani and Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme Court justice and many others close to Trump going to state legislators and state legislative bodies run by Republicans and basically making the argument that um, the actual vote of the people don't matter. Uh, The actual statements by the governor or your secretary of state or whoever runs your state elections absolutely doesn't matter. This isn't a court issue. We want you to submit fake electors um, to the National Archives, which is kind of a processing hub for the electoral slates. And Mike Pence will count the fake electors and not the real electors. And so Mike Pence wouldn't do that. So that's when the insurrection happened, because they said, if he's not going to do it, we got to kill this guy. We got to go in by force and force them to basically accept the fake electors. And so it's really not more complicated than that. And so states like Wisconsin and states like Georgia and other uh, states that were controlled by Republican bodies in the legislature, um, they submitted these fake elector slates. That's one of the things that Fawny Willis is investigating with the special grand jury. Including to the National Archive. They sent their certificates. They were so yeah. confident in their strategy. They sent some of these certificates to the National Archive. Can you imagine the day you open up that envelope, the National Archive, with a phony slate of electors? 
Well, you know, and it hinged on the vice president going along with the plan. Pence didn't. And when Pence didn't, that's when they said violence, you know, which is not too different than where they are in Mar-a-Lago at this point. You know, you hear Lindsey Graham, there's going to be riots on the street, violence. You know, that's what Trump's lawyers are out there even kind of talking about. And then they go, oh, we're not saying to do it. We're just saying that's what will happen. It's like, you know, stop with the freaking gaslighting. OK, um, we know exactly what it is that you're saying, which makes a kind of extra cowardly more on Lindsey Graham's cowardly a bit later. But we learned cowardliness a bit later. Uh, but we learned as well, talking about like the fake electors in Wisconsin. We've seen Ginny Thomas's emails. And I don't want to go into this point in more depth than it is because it's as simple as this, like CBS and Washington Post published emails of Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme Court uh, justice. We've already have her text messages from past reporting with her sending Mark Meadows, like just some of the weirdest shit ever, like basically saying like, I mean, like I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically like God has called upon you at this moment to overturn the election and to and to destroy the infidels. Like, I mean, literally, it's like written in that kind of like, culty religious you know way and and god appointed trump and i mean this is the wife of a supreme court justice and so that was on or around the insurrection leading up to it but now we have these emails as well where she just says in the emails to these various uh state legislators and it's basically a kind of a copy and pasted message where she goes you have this awesome responsibility congratulations it's up to you right now you don't have to worry about any laws or governors overturn the election and sure enough wisconsin did send these idiots in wisconsin sent us criminals sent a slate of fake electors uh to dc as well and so i don't want to go into it more than we have traitors, not just radical extremists, but when people look at the Supreme Court taking away rights, overturning Roe v. Wade, people like Ginny Thomas's husband, Clarence Thomas, saying we need to take away gay marriage. And we'll talk about some gay marriage uh, related type issues with the wedding photography case at the end of the show. But these people are like radical extremist, cultish, freaking criminals who are sitting on a Supreme Court right now. And it's so tragic to be like, I I went to Georgetown Law. I love the law. I loved reading the cases. You could tell by the show. I love talking about these cases. And part of the education that I want to give you when you watch these cases, though, is how do we stop this? Like, And I think that legal education just outside of law schools, because I think law schools, frankly, have failed us that we now have people like Clarence Thomas and uh, and that ilk of radical right extremists sitting on the Supreme Court. So we need to just improve our overall education from lay people about what's going on because you got some real freaking sickos, extremists, and this Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas stuff. I don't people go, oh, it's just the wife. Bullshit bullshit that's just the one he's equally as like that his rulings are insane his rulings are 
are not semi-fascist, are full-on fascist, and they both talk about this stuff. I have no doubt. There were text messages to Mark Meadows where she was clearly using kind of coded language that referred to Clarence Thomas. I think she said, like, our our friend or something, which I knew exactly what that meant when she's saying, our yeah. friend doesn't like to see yeah. this of it. But I don't want to belabor the gen. You want a final point? Let, let, me make, let, me, let, me, let me make one comment. Um, it has to do with the First Amendment. I, I'm fine with within within boundaries, spouses of Supreme Court justices being involved with political life. I'm not Absolutely. fine. I'm not fine. And neither are you with them crossing the line and trying to overturn democracy in an election. Just like just like people aren't allowed to invest in companies for which they're going to be judges or spouses are involved with boards on companies for which they're going to make a ruling. There's got to be limits. I'm old school. I don't want to really know the name of any of the spouses of any of the nine members of the uh, Supreme Court. I, I, I could I couldn't I couldn't name but one other one um, uh, their actual name. And, and that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, because he has his own personal story that was quite interesting. And a movie was made about her. Other than that, I really he was he I was a law professor at my law. School right. Too. There you go. I defy you to identify another another person. And that's the way I like it. And and because they've cloaked themselves in this secrecy, in this fantasy and in this fiction that she's independent from him and she can do whatever she wants in the First Amendment. I'm fine right up until the moment of insurrection and sedition and trying to overthrow a an election in this country when your <laughs> husband or wife is sitting as the final arbiter of that issue, just as they were in Bush versus Gore. I mean, there's only nine of them. Okay. It's not like 527 sitting in Congress in the Senate. You know, it's got we got nine. We could have special rules related to them and their wives. And I think we're going to have to have a post Ginny Thomas rule from the chief justice on down as to what other people can be involved with and what they can't be without disclosure or mandatory recusal so that he, uh, her, her husband, can't make rulings that are involved with her as a actor in the cast of characters around the issue that he's judging. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And as you see, just the corruption there and then, you know, Trump out there on his failing social media platforms and giving interviews saying how if he ever runs again and he's elected, he's going to pardon all of the insurrectionists. I think in a radio interview, he said, I'm even financially supporting some uh, of, of, of them, which I don't think he even is because he's too cheap to do that. But I think that he is actually um would do what he said he's going to do. They they have treated the radical right Republican MAGAs have treated these individuals from January 6th who tried to kill police officers and overturn our Democratic election as political prisoners. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, in the CPAC convention, one of the booths, right, was a kind of fake jail cell that they set up where one of the insurrectionists who not only pled guilty, but actually uh uh, was a kind of a government informant, if you will, on some of the other insurrectionists. He then dressed up in cosplay as the prisoner after he pled guilty, took responsibility before the judge and then told on the other insurrectionists. And then she like bent on her knees and like kissed him. And it was like just like these people, Popak, are are out of their mind, extreme, yeah. radical, and they're radicalizing Americans. Um, and, you know, you have former NYPD cop Thomas Weber, 
you know, someone who, you know, you know, served in the NYPD. I think you said that he was on Bloomberg's detail. He was he was on Bloom Mayor Bloomberg security detail when he was an NYPD officer. You know, he turned into a January 6th insurrectionist. And I don't want to just, you know, you don't just turn into a January insurrectionist. So clearly those feelings and views were were, were there somewhere. But did you watch that video? Did you watch I, that I did, video? You know, the, yeah. There's the, yeah, the video, which was evidence in the trial. He went through a trial. He was convicted. Yeah. Um, his his sick and disgusting defense during the trial, despite a video showing him attacking and trying to, like, stab an officer in the face with a Marine flagpole, was that he was acting. This is what he argued in trial, that he was acting in self-defense when he was attacking the officer. Um, he, and nearly, you know, it could have killed the he, officer. He yelled out. He he yelled out in the video, and it's not edited. It's the video. It's from body cam of people there, including police. He yelled out at another police. He was a former police officer at a active police officer guarding the Capitol behind a barricade. He yelled out, "Take that crap off!" Meaning his body armor and his face mask. In other words, fight me right here with my bare hands. And when he said, "Take that effing." off and then when the guy of course wouldn't because he's standing guard he pushed through the barricade the bicycle rack knocked it over leading to everybody streaming in behind it then grabbed the officer with his flagpole and started to beat him with it that's there's no defense to that that's why he just got 10 years the highest sentence the government uh ben wanted 17 and a half but the <laughs> but the uh the uh, judge cut him a break and gave him 10 years. Uh, he's, he should be lucky for that. And and he's not the last one. Just to remind everybody, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice has 250 con- uh, convictions already and sentencing. And this is the this is at the highest of everybody that was involved on the ground on Jan 6. Now they're moving on to the organizers, hopefully on their way to the president and his inner circle. Yeah, the judge cut him a break because of his background and he he hadn't been in trouble before. He did serve as a police officer, which I never understand when you abuse your badge, why the abuse, why your badge should be used as a mitigating right. factor. You know, nonetheless, he was charged with the most serious sentence. And that's the thing, Popak, you know, the expression, a, a hit dog will holler when President Biden gave uh his speech condemning people who attack police officers and try to overthrow our democracy. You have the Republicans respond to that and go, how dare you be so divisive? How dare you accuse us and and call us that? It goes, we once lived in a country where we would say attacking police officers is bad. Overthrowing democracy is bad. Supporting being pro pandemic and pretending global pandemics are not real, that that is bad. But we certainly live in the upside down world of MAGA extreme Republicans where they go, that's political. How dare you attack me? We believe that we should do these things. And so I go back to uh, a, a the, the expression, a hit dog will uh, holler. And speaking about the hit dog will holler over and over and over again. Um, 
I guess one Lindsey Graham, Steve Bannon, I get it probably applies to all of these idiot MAGA criminal fascists. But we should probably just touch very briefly on Steve Bannon, that he filed a motion for a new trial before the D.C. Uh, District Court Judge Nichols. He was a convicted. Trump, a Trump appointee. And everybody gets all hot and bothered when a Trump appointee sometimes gets assigned to a case. But Judge Nichols is a Trump appointee also. Judge Nichols is a Trump appointee. Uh, Bannon's case went before a jury. Two counts of contempt of Congress, one for not showing up for uh, testimony, the other for not turning over documents. Uh, his bases for a motion for new trial was he wanted to rely on this advice of counsel defense saying that his attorney, my attorney told me to do it. Well, my attorney said and there is D.C. Circuit precedent. And a mafia related case, I think it's like the Lucinia case or something, but in a mafia related case that says advice of counsel is not a defense for contempt of Congress. And then he also tried to make a BS claim about executive privilege. They always just try to abuse executive privilege. He's a podcaster. He, he wasn't working for Trump at the time of January 6th. There is no executive podcaster privilege and executive <laughs> privilege is Too for bad. the current administration. <laughs> yes, we don't get executive privilege. <laughs> Povak, but we hold we do a podcast. We stick it, we stick with podcasting and we don't lead insurrection. So that was just the bad end. I don't need to tell you yeah. much more. Yeah, the only other that, thing but- is just one other thing. His other grounds for the new trial or the motion to dismiss was that he wasn't allowed to bring members of this Jan 6 committee, the House, to testify where he could cross-examine them as to some of these items. And Nichols said, I you're not showing me that. First of all, you're not telling me what you think these people would say. You have to make what's called a proffer. You haven't proffered to me what you think the evidence would be that you was that you were denied. And I don't see how that's material to any claim or defense, any pro, any crime or defense here to have them come in and make a circus out of this testifying about what's going on with the Jan 6 committee. This has to do with your subpoena and you not having complied with it, not about all the other things. So, look, on balance, Nichols has come out the way you and I thought he would, given his background as a sober, uh, uh, sophisticated a white collar criminal defense lawyer at a major law firm in Washington, which is the exact opposite of the type of types of lawyers that Trump's Trump picks for his own representation. I would say this, though, the one issue that I think that Nichols um, said was he was constrained by the precedent and he had made comments that I don't know if this should be good precedent, but I have to follow the precedent. And so I think he realizes that when this gets appealed, which Bannon will appeal before the D.C. Circuit, I think the D.C. Circuit is going to follow their previous precedent. But I do think he was tipping his hat a little bit to the Supreme Court, where I do think this case will go on whether advice of counsel should be a defense or not a defense. And that's the area where he was constrained by precedent, but gave Bannon a little bit more than he otherwise could have. And that's yeah. actually in his in in his kind of final order. But sentencing will take place in October. And, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, Bannon will actually be going to jail. It could be as low as 30 days, as high as two years, one year per each uh, contempt of Congress charge. Let's turn to Fulton County. Uh, And in Fulton County, Lindsey Graham is ordered to testify before the special grand jury. Now, Lindsey Graham has been avoiding this testimony like the 
uh, plague. plague. <laughs> Lindsey Graham has cited the speech and debate clause, which basically says that for legitimate legislative activity, uh, legislators, members of Congress and Senate can't be questioned anywhere, really. It's a broad immunity that initially was written in a way that said, if 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 legislators make these statements on the house floor they should be protected because we want we don't want to chill their you know legitimate legislative speech it's since been broadened the seminal case is a 1972 case gravel versus the united states which basically says that legitimate legislative activity in a modern world doesn't have to be like literally the floor and it could also extend to the staff of the legislator but it still has to be legitimate legislative activity and even gravel says like you like trying to do illegal stuff and like pressure the legislative branch to do things or the line of cases. If you're speaking to public or doing media releases or press releases, that's not like legitimate legislative activity. And Lindsey Graham cited speech and debate clause as the basis. And so I want to tell you why the court basically found that the speech and debate clause may for a limited extent apply to certain questioning but that Fawny Willis would be able to ask very narrow, targeted questions on all these other issues. So the the, the basic answer is Lindsey Graham is going to testify. So Popak and I have to break that down. But first, I got to tell you that today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, Exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can lead us to become deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a category-leading superfood product bringing comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody, and it keeps up with the latest research. And here's why I love it. One tasty scoop, you put this green powder in a cup, you shake it up, you put water in it, you shake it up, you drink it, boom. You got all the 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blends, and more in one convenient daily serving. I like it because it tastes great. It's delicious. It's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And you're going to have to take all these vitamins and pills anyway, if you want to like try to get your nutrients. And for me, when I would try to do that stuff, I would always fail at it. I didn't know what I was doing. I would just buy gummies and stuff because they looked cool. But this actually has the nutrients that I need. It's super easy. I drink it in the morning and it tastes great. And it's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, or dairy-free or gluten-free, it's for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. So join legal AFers like myself and Michael Popak and get that essential daily nutrition with AG1. Athletic Greens is going to make it easy. Popak and I negotiated a deal with them just for you. A free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com legal AF. Take control of your health. Give AG1 a try and get that free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Popak, I set the stage for Lindsey Graham right there now hit it at the park 
All right, Judge May. Remember the 11th Circuit, Ben, and our listeners and followers sent it back to Judge May to get more granular about the application of the speech and debate clause to Lindsey Graham's expected testimony. We all know what he's going to testify about. He's going to testify about the phone calls he made to Brad Raffensperger and Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia, uh, right after the election. Uh, at the behest, obviously, of Donald Trump about mail-in ballots and whether they could be thrown out in order to turn the election tide in favor of Donald Trump. Sounds bad because it is. That's called election interference, and it's a crime in every state, including Georgia. So um, and Raffensperger has already testified and publicly disclosed his testimony, which is he took the phone call from um, Lindsey Graham the only way he thought he could take it, which was a instruction or a direction to do something, which was to throw out mail-in ballots in order to turn the election in favor of Donald Trump. Um, Lindsey Graham has tried to characterize all of his phone calls as kind of innocuous, ordinary, legislative fact-finding. You know, Ben, it's sort of like Jared Kushner coming out yesterday or the day before on television saying that the whole squabble, the whole kerfuffle at Mar-a-Lago about documents and stolen documents and crimes. It's just paperwork. It's just about it's just about an overdue library card, a library book. It's not a it's not a crime. And here you got Lindsey Graham saying everything I do is covered by legislative fact finding, because why else am I making those phone calls? And Judge May, having been ordered by the 11th Circuit to do more fact finding and more and more work to develop the record about the application of the speech and debate clause, she ultimately sided with Fonnie Willis as a special prosecutor, but did find that there were certain areas that she would not allow him to be inquired about, Lindsey Graham, because they were classic speech and debate protected, immunity protected uh, work like legislative fact finding. But she made it clear that he's going to be able she's going to be able to ask him questions and he's going to have to answer questions about two primary categories. One any of his efforts to, in her words, in her 23-page order from yesterday or day before, cajole, exhort, or pressure Raffensperger to throw out ballots is fair game for questioning. And that's how Raffensperger has framed it. So you could see a prosecutor presenting the case to the grand jury with Graham sitting in the chair saying, sir, you you made this phone call on this date to Brad Raffensperger, didn't you? Yes. And the other and this other person from his office was present. Isn't that right, sir? Yes. And there's no recording of that, is there? No. And there's no notes of that that you have. I don't have I didn't take notes that day. And Mr. Raffensperger testified that you told him the following. Isn't that true, sir? So he'll either lie, deny it, or they're going to have a fight over this this privilege. Now, the second thing that the judge may said that that. Uh, Fonnie Willis's team is allowed to ask him about is about his coordination with the Trump campaign about that phone call and about the election in Georgia. She said, look, I get that you can do fact finding as part of your legislative process and that finding out of facts is part of the process. But if it crosses over into you making facts, right, you're creating facts throw out mail-in ballots. That's not a fact that you're finding. That's a fact that you're making. And if you're making facts as a witness, you get to be asked about it. Now, this isn't the last stop on the train, unfortunately, for Lindsey Graham um, and for us. So we'll have to talk about it again, because now it automatically goes back to the 11th Circuit, 
who already gave Graham a little bit of daylight to try to thread his argument through earlier when they when they ordered Judge May go back and apply the speech and debate clause to kind of each potential question so we have a better record before we make our decision. She's now done that, which means it's going to go on fast track back to the 11th Circuit and the 11th Circuit with Judge May's full record, the new briefing by both sides in front of them is going to make the final decision subject to the Supreme Court about whether Lindsey Graham is going to testify and to what he's going to testify to. And one last comment, Ben, on it, as I as you and I talked about, remember, Judge May is also the judge that handled the same issues for Representative Congressman Jody Heiss. And she offered Jody Heiss that on a question by question basis, she, the judge, would be willing to serve as the special master, if you will, and make a ruling on the fly about whether he had a te- he had to testify to that or not. In a footnote in Lin- in her opinion about Lindsey Graham, she offered the same mechanism that even though you know Lindsey Graham could run back to Judge McBurney, who's the chief judge state court level of Fulton County, come back to me as the federal judge supervising this issue, and I will make the ruling for you on a, on a question-by-question basis, as I have offered to do for Representative Heiss. Now we got to see what happens in the next week or two with the 11th Circuit. And really, Judge May did that. She recognizes that the 11th Circuit is a fairly right-wing court, and to try to insulate her order, that's why she offered to do that, among other reasons. She also made some other very, I thought, kind of kind of funny remarks in, in it. You know, I mean, that just could be me as like a legal nerd. But the way she basically said it, which was that, you know, Lindsey Graham argues that objectively all of this constitutes legitimate legislative activity and that he was clearly fact finding. And then she goes, that's not really an objective view of the, of the facts. She goes, you're a South Carolina senator in Georgia, what are you, you know, what are you doing there? Which, ra- you know, and she said it in a nice way, which raises considerable questions about disputed facts between what the objective criterion should be applied here. But what she's saying is, is that, come on, man, what are you talking about? Why we know, we know what you were really up to. But again, it just goes to the gaslighting that the radical right Republicans do every day, whether it's in the media, on social media in our court system and the abuse of institutions and things like executive privilege or here speech and debate. I mean, to try to immunize yourself and kind of cloak yourself in legitimate legislative activity when you go and you do this heinous stuff. Look, Popak, if it was really legitimate legislative activity, wouldn't this be just the easiest testimony in the world for him to have? Right. I mean, right. even if you, you, you'd just show up and you'd go, look, I really care deeply about the Electoral Count Act. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I'm investigating the Electoral Count Act. Here are my notes about it. These conversations informed my vote on the Electoral Count. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I don't have to talk about it under the speech or debate, but I have nothing to hide here. I just I care about the people. You know, the same way Democrats are happy to talk about, hey, we're fighting the inflation reduction for, for you for the inflation reduction that we're fighting for you on the PAC deck. We're fighting for you for the chips. Like, like we're proud of the stuff that we do. The legislative fact fighting that Democrats and into and pro-democracy do. Sure, we'll chat it. We'll chat about it because we're trying to help people. There's nothing that he was doing here that was help me helpful to people. Well, let me let me show let, let me let me use. I like that a lot. So let me show 
why don't we show our listeners and followers what it would look like? He would call up and he would say, is there anything about the process, the electoral process, the security around the electoral process that implicates fraud or that there are votes that would that would change the election, Mr. Secretary of State? Um, no. <laughs> is there anything that would indicate that this is not a free and fair election in the state of Georgia or that the people have spoken? Is there anything about absentee balloting, mail-in balloting, the operation of the individual clerks in counties or in precincts that gives you pause about certifying the election in Georgia? No. That's proper fact-finding if you if you really, first time in history, a, a, a South Carolina senator called a Georgia Secretary of State to ask him about his election process. But, all right, that's arguable. That's how a Democrat would do it. Not, hey, you got a bunch of mail-in ballots. Can you toss them so that my president can win? That is not fact-finding. That is pressuring, cajoling, and a conspiracy to overturn an election, interfere with an election in the state of Georgia. And I think ultimately the 11th Circuit, or maybe we're going to see what's going to happen with the numbers at the Supreme Court if it goes that far. But the timing issue is also weird here because you got McBurney kicking the can as the supervising chief justice of the uh, Fulton County special grand jury, he's probably going to have to renew that grand jury because he may run out of time on the one year leash that he gave to, uh, that he gave to um, uh, Fawney. But he's already said, eh, we're getting too close to the November election, kick it off. Now we're talking December, January, February. She's going to start running out of time on that. He'll have to re up the special, the special committee. Supreme Court's going to have to rule on some expedited basis if the 11th Circuit goes awry or if Lindsey Graham's office appeals, which they likely will. So he may not be testifying for quite some time. Did you, to your point about the upside down world, did you see the comment that was made, official comment that was made from his office after the ruling came out? What did he say? His office said, um, we are, um, we are uh, happy that Judge May has fully uh, fully understands uh, the speech and debate clause and has ruled um, that all of his activities are covered by it. I mean, that is completely upside down, cuckoo crazy. That is not what the 23 pages say um, at all. If you were to, on balance, report this fairly the way we, you and I are, he lost the hearing um, on the two major issues that matter to Fawny Willis, and now he's going to have to take it up to the 11th Circuit. No doubt about it. And then I guess we turn to the world of uh, Trump appointed judges and just kind of Republican cruelty all around. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, Democrats are fighting to make sure troops get health care who are exposed to toxic burn pits and building the infrastructure and how to protect freedoms. You know, I'm not sure if you saw like the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs, for example, trying to expand the way that they offer abortion related services to troop members and their families in cases of, you know, rape and incest and other circumstances, even in states where uh, abortion is banned, you know, which is one of the things that uh, in, and there are where there are total abortion bans and that's going to be litigated. There's uh, a 1992 law called the Hyde Amendment, which tries to prevent federal funding of abortions. But then there's other laws that would which would do the contrary, which is what um, the veteran affairs is is relying on, but just trying to help people protect people's rights in these circumstances. What are Republicans doing? What are they big focused on? Like, how do we like just hurt people in very just kind of cruel and unusual and 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 certain ways? So like, they're always obsessed with like wedding cakes and 
you know, this case that we're talking about out of Louisville, Kentucky, where a federal district court judge, Benjamin Beaton, who was appointed by Donald Trump uh, ruling. This is a big, a big filing that uh, was filed, but it's pushed by the radical right Republican agenda where this wedding photographer said her religious beliefs are such that she doesn't want to take photographs at weddings of gay couples and that that violates her rights under the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause. We've talked about the Free Exercise Clause under the First Amendment here on the show over and over again, which is basically the clause that this radical right kind of theocratic Supreme Court looks to to basically say religion can do like the, the your rights to practice religion, basically trump pun intended or no pun intended, all of the other rights that are out there. And so the First Amendment says Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of a religion, which is the separation of church and state, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so the same way the radical Republicans look at the Second Amendment and read out well-regulated militia, regulation, militia, and just focus on the right to bear arms, the focus here is prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so these cases um, are filed, one, because of their cruelty and the issue of just putting the middle finger to gay couples, because that's what they like to do, number one. But two, they try to use these cases to create precedent to discriminate generally in broader contexts against marginalized groups. So they go, hey, look, we got this precedent on photographs. Let's extend it to restaurants. Let's extend it to who I can serve food. Let's extend it to who can, you know, who who can show up at a club or a bar and who could dance with. And all of our views of equal protection under the law, the radical right Supreme Court and these Trump district judges say, well, the, the, the free exercise clause of the religion trumps all of that stuff. And so here the judge granted an injunction. Uh, with respect to this state, uh, this local ordinance out of Louisville, Kentucky. And the ordinance said what many ordinances say, which is if you're operating in our city, don't discriminate against LGBTQ plus the same way. Don't discriminate against other races or don't discriminate. We we provide equality. Um, and here this photographer says, we don't I don't want equality. I want my religious beliefs say I can discriminate. And the Trump judge said, sure, you can discriminate. Um, based on the free exercise clause, it's going to be appealed, of yeah. course. But, you know, this is one of those cases, though, that as as a legal AF listener, we flag now because this is something we can be talking about that may hit the Supreme Court in a year, 18 months, two years as it works its way up. But it's intentional for yeah. the effect that I mentioned. So so that that's good, Ben. Good setup here for that. Two things, two things to for me to observe. One is shout out to Louisville because if you had asked me of all the cities in the South who would have um, this type of anti-discriminatory, including LGBTQ um, aspects, Louisville wouldn't have been. For, I like Louisville. I've been there. I've been there for the Derby and other things. But uh, shout out to that city commissioner council for having had that on the books. Um, you know, we have this collision, this unfortunate collision of a Trump-appointed judge, Federalist judge. Um, who goes by the name of, let me get his name right, Benjamin Beaton, B-E-A-T-O-N, or Benton. And um, the Supreme Court law that you and I talked about, God, a, a year ago, in which the Supreme Court said, oh, if you're an artist, 
Baker. Now, bakers are artists, photographers, you know, artists. If you're an artist, we can't compel you to use your artistic talent um, in a way that violates your First Amendment, even if it's discriminatory or racist or um, homophobic or anti-LGBTQ or whatever it is. And that's sort of the precedent that we saw with the Supreme Court that now is winding its way through the lower courts and in these jurisdictions through challenges. And just to remind everybody why Ben and the brothers talk about elections mattering, it's hard to believe this. And everybody's all up in arms at times, although I think the tide has changed with Merrick Garland. I think people understand what he's been doing. He's been quiet like a crocodile, ready to snap. However, elections matter. Barr's Department of Justice in 2020, who filed an amicus brief in, uh, against the Louisville um, uh, ordinance and, of course, in favor of the Baker in, uh, in the Supreme Court, that, um, that Department of Justice had a department, I don't know if you remember this, Ben, which is crazy, that was called uh, the Religious Liberty task force let's get this clear the department of justice in 2020 under donald trump had a religious liberty task force who was in who was charged with uh defending cases just like this one on behalf of people that wanted to be discriminatory and racist and biased and bigoted against other americans that's what our department of justice had that group that task force was sponsored by anti-lgbtq hate groups and and tasks and groups that that lobbied Trump and the people around him to set up this this group within the Department of Justice. Crazy. That's why elections matter, because we don't have that task force anymore. And Merrick Garland's Department of Justice is not run like a kindergarten or a personal, a personal fiefdom in a transactional way by the president. It's run by adults who care about justice and lady and lady liberty. So we're going to follow the case. It's going to run loggerheads into the Supreme Court precedent over over the uh, the Baker issue. And the question that fundamentally is going to be what what is an artist? You and I talked about this before. And what other professions are going to try to claim that they're artists when it comes to their profession in order to get the benefit of this Supreme Court ruling, um, allowing people to, to basically giving them license to discriminate against fellow Americans? Popak, we will follow that and we will follow more right here on Legal AF, where we analyze the most consequential legal news of the week of the time each and every weekend. And of course, the midweek episode as well. We appreciate the growing community here at Legal AF. I tell everybody, go to store.midastouch.com now. Go to store.midastouch.com. Get the best pro democracy gear out there we've got the rovember t-shirts which are close to selling out make sure you get your rovember t-shirts now we've got row 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 your vote t-shirts we got unapologetically pro democracy t-shirts convict or convict 45 we got pin bundles as well of course we got legal af gear join the midas mighty and get your gear store.midastouch.com and make sure you subscribe on youtube just surpassed 500,000 subscribers over 4 million views every 48 hours here on the midas touch youtube channel literally 
the fastest growing independent media company in the world. But it's not just because we're a media company or a network popak. I'm so often reminded and that I should always talk about how which the reality out there, which is that we're more than just a company. And that's what makes this work. The Midas Touch Legal AF is a movement and it's a movement powered by the Legal AFers, the Midas Mighty, everybody listening. And truthfully, we are nowhere without you. And it just brings me so much joy to see this community expanding and expanding so rapidly. And so to everyone who was there from us for day one, we so appreciate all the OGs from everyone there joining us right now. Welcome to the Midas Mighty. Welcome to Legal AF, where we've reinvented the way news should be, which to me is very simple. Just calling the balls and strikes, saying it like it is, but calling traitors, traitors, calling fascists, fascists, not both sidesing the issue and making sure you all know what's at stake. Again, if you want to get your gear, go to store dot Midas touch.com. Another way to support independent media. We're not supported by any outside investors. So we're not beholden to any special interests or billionaires with agendas. It's run by me and my two brothers and the great work of people like Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who hosts the midweek with Popak and a whole panel of other great hosts who work hard. So one way you can support is by hitting the super fan button on the bottom of YouTube and making a contribution to the show and to help support our editors and things like that. It goes a, a long way, but really no matter what, the best way you can help us is by hitting the subscribe button right now. And if you get this on YouTube, Go over to the audio right now and make sure you subscribe on the audio. It'll take you two minutes. It helps the show a lot. And go and leave a five-star review on the audio. If you listen on audio, make sure you're subscribed on audio. Make sure you left a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. But then go over to the YouTube channel and subscribe to the YouTube channel. That goes a long way and helps as well. And make sure you share. Legal AF with friends and family and colleagues and even people who may disagree with you and your political beliefs. Because at the end of the day, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I don't believe a lot of this stuff is political, like supporting democracy, saying that you shouldn't attack law enforcement, saying that it's bad to steal top secret, sensitive, compartmented information, saying that global pandemics should be treated seriously. I, I don't know about you. I don't view those as political issues. I view those as people issues. And we need to start speaking to people as people. And that is an important ethos here at Midas Touch. Michael Popak, always the best time of my week spending it with you. A special thanks to Athletic Greens. Seriously, I don't talk about stuff on this podcast that I don't use myself. So if you go to athleticgreens.com slash legalaf, Tell me about your experience. Everyone in Legal AF has tried it, who loves it. Athleticgreens.com. Use the code LegalAF when you get there. I promise you, you will uh, definitely enjoy it. Tastes great. I think it's really, really, really good. Athleticgreens.com slash LegalAF. And again, make sure you hit subscribe, store.midastouch.com. 
We will see you next time. A lot of fast moving legal news. We'll keep doing breakdowns for you. Popak, love spending these weekends with you and wish you a great, great, great weekend. Thank you very much. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.